Welcome to The Conversation. I am Mark Thompson, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to my home, which is one of the least welcoming vistas that you will likely see. But nonetheless, in this COVID-19 age, it's all we have. I'm really excited about today's uh, first guest because this is a subject very dear to my heart, and that is the people's voice. The people's voice in our republic as set up in this democracy, it's about the vote. I think the vote's being suppressed in many ways. I think the vote is being washed away in many ways, sometimes literally. I mean, you, you can find executed ballots, you know, weeks after the election in some box somewhere in, in, in the corner of some state. And uh, so how we vote and continuing to get out the vote, I think, is a critical part of the people's voice being heard, especially during COVID-19. Because, and then my preamble will be over after this last point, I think these kinds of situations, these crisis situations, in this case COVID-19, are oftentimes seized upon by special interests to destroy things like the people's voice and destroy uh, your ability to be heard through the vote. And so that's why it is my pleasure to welcome Adam Eichen. And, and Adam has dedicated himself through Equal Citizens to just this, getting out the vote and the people's voice being heard through the vote. Hi, Adam. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I, I want to touch on a, a few things and, and ask you maybe to guide us a little bit to those things that you feel are of greatest priority. But there is a lot of talk now with COVID-19 of sort of what's going to happen when election day comes. Uh, how can we still vote in some kind of timely fashion, the mail-in vote, the absentee votes. Can you touch on sort of the state of the state when it comes to these things? Yeah, absolutely. And this is obviously on many people's mind because, you know, COVID-19 is going to disrupt our elections unless we act. But the good news is that we know exactly what to do to crisis-proof our elections. Uh, there's really no question about that. Uh, we know that if we expand vote by mail, making it easier to vote absentee, providing robust early voting periods, uh, online voter registration, same-day voter registration, allocating enough money so election officials can be adequately staffed and that they can you know, pay for postage and many other things. You know, These are the reforms that we need to be thinking about right now. Uh, you know, many people want to push this off. They want to kick the can down the road because, you know, rightfully, there are many, many pressing issues right now, including, you know, public health, the economy. Uh, but now is the time that we have to act, even though it's months away, because these election reforms take time to set up. Uh, this is you can't just snap your fingers a week before the election and, you know, have a slew of reforms to crisis proof our elections. The time is now. So. The bad news is we don't have too much time. And the bad news is we have to act now and Congress doesn't really seem to be super eager to do that, especially in the Senate with Mitch McConnell uh, and the president right now. But the good news is that we know exactly what to do. We know the, which reforms work. Uh, and it's just really a matter of willpower and you know whether or not Americans are gonna get engaged to fight for these necessary reforms to ensure uh, that no one has to choose between their health and the right to vote. Uh, because that's ultimately what this comes down to, uh, is we do not want anybody facing that choice. The recent elections in Wisconsin were an example of what happens when you force people to make that choice. And it's plainly unacceptable. Well, 
you know, you touch on the fact that there is not a whole lot of time. And you also touch on the fact that, you know, you have a Senate controlled by the GOP, which seems to me has a vested interest in on some level suppressing the vote. So the uh, the two work together in if they can just delay this. In other words, they can be co-conspirators in delaying. I'm talking about GOP legislators. Uh, you may see in just that delay what you're talking about, which is suppressing the vote and an Ill inability to get some of these specific reforms in place in time for the election. So what would you like to see us do? I mean, the, the average citizen, what would you like to see when you say it's about willpower? OK, you've got my willpower. Now what do I do? Well, I think there are a couple of things. So you're, you're absolutely right that Mitch McConnell and the president don't seem particularly eager to uh, pass these democracy reforms, despite them being absolutely critical to a free and fair and legitimate election in November. Uh, but one thing we can do is we can pressure the Democrats who have expressed a willingness to push for democracy reforms in response to this crisis to make this a red line in negotiations, to say no more money, no more stimulus unless you safeguard our elections, unless you allocate over $2 billion as the Brennan Center for Justice estimates is needed at bare minimum to adequately fund our elections in this crisis. Uh, we need to make sure that congressional Democrats are holding firm on this and, and really making this a sticking point in negotiations because there is leverage, because you know this is a moment where things have to get passed. So making sure this is a red line is critical. But also I don't wanna you know, make viewers think that the only action is in Congress. We're seeing states across the country actually reform election laws to make them more accessible. Uh, whether it's easing absentee requirements or, um, you know, sending out voters absentee request forms. Uh, but there's a slew of things that can be done on the state level, too. Um, you know, and I think that making sure we're putting pressure on uh, state officials is also critical, especially if you live in one of the handful of states that still require an excuse uh, to vote absentee, that everybody in America should have the right to vote uh, by mail if they're fearful of COVID. I feel like that's an incredibly reasonable thing to do. Um, and, and moreover, um, and I think we'll talk about this a bit, I also think that there's, there's tremendous obligation for media organizations to really prioritize um, getting out information about uh, uh, voter registration and how to request an absentee ballot. Uh, a colleague of mine, Josh Douglas, a law professor at the University of Kentucky, and I wrote an article for Talking Points Memo arguing that media organizations should be, you know, putting links to, for example, vote.org on anything related to uh, elections, or even newspapers could print voter registration forms as part of their Sunday editions. These are all things that newspapers, media organizations can do to ensure that voters are educated about reforms that are taking place. Because Mark, I'll, I'll just say this, that you know, we can change all the laws we want and we can do it quickly. But if voters don't know that they all of a sudden have the right to vote by mail, then those reforms don't mean as much. So in addition to changing the laws, we, the collective we, ordinary citizens talking to their family and media organizations like TYT, have to do their part to ensure that voters know about how to safely cast a ballot, how to register to vote, um, when the voter registration deadlines are, when the registry or when the deadlines for requesting an absentee ballot are. There are a lot of different steps in this process uh, coming up to November, and it's all hands on deck. It's not just lawmakers. I love that. I love that point. I, I really think it, it seems as though um, the media may be a linchpin to public awareness. I mean, it, it, that would seem to follow. But that's 
the danger of this COVID-19 era, which distracts the media in large measure from some of these messages. Like, as you say, just the fact that 39 states have online voter registration, that kind of lost in the shuffle because it's sort of, uh, is there a vaccine for COVID-19 yet, you know? Uh, so I think in the, in the daily news wash, the priorities of voter registration and voter options uh, can kind of get lost. Yeah, and you know it's not the the coolest issue to be talking about voter registration months before the election, but Mark, in a normal presidential election cycle, right, most voters are getting registered through government agencies like the DMV or through registration drives by the League of Women Voters, for instance. But those things aren't happening right now, so you know the campaigns can't quite go door to door, and so there's going to be a registration crisis unless there's massive public education that you have to register before uh, the election day in many states. I mean, these things for people who right now are worried, having just lost their job or might soon lose their job, or they're worried about a family member uh, who who's getting sick or you know might be at risk of getting sick. You know, thinking about elections months in advance is not necessarily on the forefront of their mind. And so it's That's up to right. us to make sure they get the information that they need, because Election Day might roll around. And then if you're in a state where there's a 20 or 30 day registration window, you're out of luck. You can't vote. That's such a great point. It's one, honestly, I haven't even, it hasn't even occurred to me that you're right. All the normal ways even that one might have access to voting have changed. And we just don't know when those systems that we're sort of used to in, in almost a perfunctory way, you know, you mentioned the DMV and all that, when, when they will return. Exactly. And that's why it's so critical that we push not just Congress, but state uh, lawmakers to act, because states could, for example, send every unregistered uh, voter a registration form. Uh, you know, states can send ballots to every uh, registered voter as well, as five states currently do, and California currently in transition to do that as well. Um, you know, there are many different reforms to actually get the information into the hands of voters uh, through governmental action. So this isn't, it's not just a media thing. It's also, you know, much more effective if lawmakers step up and do exactly what they need in terms of best practices uh, to ensure that information gets into the hands of voters. But not every state legislature is, is acting appropriately. And that's where media organizations, civic groups come in to try and bridge the gap where lawmakers aren't acting appropriately. So ideally, right, we want yeah. Congress to act. But, I have to you know, say, at a time when I think this republic has a lot of problems staring it in the face, and I mean systemic problems and governmental uh, issues that are raised by the COVID-19 crisis. In other words, I think there's really, a, you could almost say, a crisis of conscience about what's happening in this country and the systems that are set up. I like this emphasis that you have on some of these very things. And uh, I hope you get the, the word out through all of these different organizations. And uh, because as you, I, I mean, I understand, let, let's re review your organization on the website, but there are also others along the way. Uh, just quickly in our last couple of seconds, uh, give, us, give us the web addresses and, and where people can get more information, please. Sure. So I'm the campaigns manager for an organization called Equal Citizens. You can find us at equalcitizens.us. But please share the link to vote.org. They have all the information they, uh, you need to register to vote, how to request an absentee ballot. Uh, please get the word out. And uh, if you read the article on Talking Points Memo, 
email your local newspaper or state newspaper, try and get them to follow the advice that Josh Douglas and I lay out. The more newspapers and media organizations we can get that to spread the word about voter registration and how to request an absentee ballot, um, you know, the more we are going to able, the more we're going to able to have a, a functional democracy in November. Adam Eichen, I will also post the Talking Points uh, piece that you did. And with my five followers, I expect to bust this whole thing open. <laughs> I, uh, it was a pleasure to spend time with you. Adam, as I say, all kidding aside, it's a righteous fight, and I wish you good luck. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay, Adam, all the best. Hi, I'm Mark Thompson. It's a pleasure to have you here on The Conversation, and it is such a pleasure also to welcome in Jonathan Metzl. Jonathan, you should know, professor and director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. His book is super provocative. It's called Dying of Whiteness. Yeah, the world of guns, though, enters very much into a lot of the conversation and the activism and those things that Jonathan has been very passionate about. So we'll get to some of that. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you? I'm well. It's really uh, cool to have you on, on board. Um, I thought of you, actually, this is sort of odd, because uh, I know that uh, guns, and we're going to talk about it, and, and the, uh, the funding of gun research, which has sort of been something that's been carved out for, for many, many years. Uh, but the, this, this topic of guns is something that's very dear to you. And I noticed that when the COVID-19 thing hit, there was this run to the, the gun shops. I mean, like literally there were lines outside of some of the gun stores here in Los Angeles. And, and, and I thought of you. And, that, and, and someone then told me that there is a huge run on guns, but that there are no bullets uh, available. So many people have bought up this world of guns and bullets that there are no bullets for the guns people are buying now. Well, maybe people can like swing the guns at each other if, if there are no bullets. So that, that's actually, <laughs> it's absolutely right that, you know, basically... There was there was a, obviously a moment of real terror when the when the pandemic hit and people realized how serious it was, uh, and at that moment, um, you know, people ran toward the things they felt they needed in a time of, of despair or desperation. Some people ran for toilet paper, some people went for Purell, and and some people ran ran for bullet uh, for for guns. And I think part of the part of that was that um, you know nobody knew what was going to happen or we're going to have to defend ourselves uh, there was a fear of anarchy and some of the people i've i've interviewed um are we going to be fighting uh, you know it's better to have a gun if you're fighting somebody for purell or toilet paper or food or something like that and the other thing is uh, you know th there was this narrative that was spread by the nra and the trump administration that this was a moment where the second amendment was going to be under attack and that you weren't going to get be able to get guns after this and so this idea that there's going to be some limit on the number of guns you can you can get is is really just a surefire way to get people to run out and, and buy more guns and i think that that that's what happened and the numbers were pretty remarkable you know uh, in some states like oklahoma and across the midwest um, there, there was, you know, in some areas, an 800% rise in, in gun sales, really unprecedented in American history. And now we have a situation where, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do as a society. We're all terrified and there are just, you know, in some locations, 800% more guns in, in people's homes, which we could have a debate about whether that makes people more safe um, to protect themselves or whether there's more danger in homes. But that's basically what happened. Well, the debates around how many guns you should have and all that sort of thing, uh, they, uh, I find people who want a lot of guns are going to find a rationale for having a lot of guns. You know, i got to protect myself from the government. i got to protect myself from other citizens, whatever it is. Uh, 
but but the the thing that you emphasize and that is so striking is that uh, this world of guns and gun ownership and the proliferation maybe uh, is the best way to put it of guns has been really almost a pure negative for the very communities that so uh, desperately clamor for the right to have them. That, that's the research I did in my book, that basically I looked at this at this, this rise, particularly in, in white, white male gun ownership and in states, the states I looked at were, you know, Missouri and Kansas and Tennessee and kind of, part, kind of purple red states. Uh, and on one hand, I saw the rise of guns as kind of these symbols of autonomy and authority. There was also a, a historic transformation in just why people owned guns. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, people in those areas basically said, I, I'm a hunter, you know, or I have a family tradition of owning weapons. And and the NRA and, and politicians were basically able to shift that narrative um, almost entirely to all of a sudden people started needing guns to protect themselves from other people, from, you know, to use uh, LaPierre's language from the NRA, um, gangbangers and carjackers and all these people. And the minute people started fearing other people and needing guns uh, for that, there was a dramatic rise, uh, you know, unprecedented rise in gun ownership uh, to the point where before the pandemic hit, the U.S. had about four and a half percent of the world's population, but over 50 percent of the world's civilian owned firearms, really a, a civilian arsenal. Um, and what I show in my research is, you know, there were some examples of people um, protecting themselves uh, with those guns and, and probably people derived, you know, some psychological benefit from feeling safe but it went hand in hand with really dramatic rises in, in gun suicides, in partner shooting, shootings and accidental shootings. And so this, this kind of status symbol or protection symbol that white men were accumulating really was um, you know, rising in relation to you know, really an epidemic of gun-related injury and death and not shooting strangers, but shooting you know, you know, shootings in, in your home, shooting, uh, you know, domestic violence kind of shooting, which is what really makes this current pandemic moment so so dangerous because it just has led to a dramatic rise in guns in people's homes um, at a time where people are staying home and kids are home. Yeah, your research is really uh, uh, so impressive in this regard. And yet, as a country, we've tried to, this is the, I guess, the legislative part of it, We've tried to defund things that would help that research concerning gun reform or knowing more about what gun ownership uh, actually means uh, in, in terms of statistics that involve death and gun accidents and that sort of thing. Yeah, if, if you know, for the last 30 years, somebody said, what do we need to do to stop a mass shooting or what's the safest way to s store your gun, you know, statistically? Um, you know, researchers, for the most part, um, would have to say, I don't know. And it's not that they weren't good researchers. It's that there was a about a three-decade federal ban, uh, effectively, on using federal funds to study um, gut, gut, basically gun research. You know, uh, it, it wasn't like gun research about how do we take away people's guns. It was just, you know, what are the best practices? What are the, you know, what data sets do we need? And it got to this, this is because of something called the Dickey Amendment. Uh, it was an amendment, a federal writer uh, to the federal budget in the mid 1990s. And it had about a three decade run of basically gun research was the second least funded kind, uh, you know, kind of research leading to death. I think um, above, like um, I, I can't remember, some some arcane uh, infection or something. Uh, there was hardly any any research for gun for gun uh, for gun studies, and so we really have a shortage of knowledge to help us at a time like this. Now, 
things started to change right before the pandemic. Uh, the Congress passed a, a budget that had about $20 million for gun research. So, you know, right now, fortuitously, we were seeing some of the first federal funding for gun research. But it's important to note that that was really a one-time budget pass. And the Dickey Amendment is still in place. And, and so it's really this crazy situation where guns are proliferating, shootings are proliferating, and we have this dearth, this dearth of science um, where we don't know how to, how to keep people safe. So no matter what happens in this moment, I think it's really a moment where we need to keep pushing for, for more research about just what are the best practices, what are the best laws, what are the best policies. You know, we have an election uh, upcoming, uh, you know, a big presidential election, general election, but there are obviously all kinds of uh, elections up. within that uh, big election that brings people to the polls. I mean, in whatever uh, form people get to the polls or to the uh, to some kind of ballot uh, this year with COVID-19. Uh, but I'm getting at, uh, in your book, Dying of Whiteness, uh, you know, we have a general sense of the voters in many of these areas that we assume to be red states and that are indeed played out as red states in terms of priorities, voting against their best interests. You know, they vote for this image, this guy, this strong man sort of uh, uh, leader like Donald Trump as someone who'll defend his rights. No one's going to take this away or that away, in this case, Second Amendment type uh, uh, rights. Uh, can you speak to how that that world of uh, whiteness played out in the book? I mean, it played out in your research and what you've you focused upon, how that that works itself out somehow with people's image of themselves and who they vote for as their leader. Well, I, I'm not in the book. I'm not talking about like all white people or white identity. Uh, um, really, what I'm talking about is the rise of a particular form of white racial resentment. It's a politics that basically is kind of anti-immigrant, anti-government, this idea that there were privileges that were due to white Americans that are being taken away by, you know, using Trump's rhetoric, you know, rapists pouring across the border from, from Mexico, things like that. And this narrative that basically there are things due to you that are being taken away by undeserving immigrants or minorities um, really was this powerful driver of a lot of politics. A lot of politics I talk about in the book um, certainly with the uh, Affordable Care Act, um, which would have helped a lot of people in, in a lot of red states, but um, GOP politicians were able to basically say, no, this system is going to be gamed by by Mexicans and immigrants or Obama, the witch doctor, things like that. And they were able to basically get people to vote against their own health care. Um, and guns, a similar kind of thing, this idea, this very racialized uh, sense that you need a gun to protect yourself from some racial other who's going to come come harm you was a driver, I think, for, for a lot of gun sales. I, I have a lot of evidence about that in the book. And the list goes on and on and on, you know, cuts to... Uh, education, for example, um, is another another topic I, I look at in the book. And ultimately, you know, I really look at this as a self-destructive and destructive nature for society of those kind of policies, because people really, I mean, it, it's almost human nature, this idea that you have a privilege or a right that's going to be taken away from you. And it's not like I call people, you know, ill-informed or stupid or anything like that, but just the power of that kind of manipulation that that somebody's out to get you. And, and we see it now in the pandemic, this idea that um, it's not our fault, it's somebody else's fault and all these kind of things. It's, it's a powerful driver. People are afraid. But what I show in the book is just how, how really, um, really, really deadly that kind of narrative is because look at this pandemic as one example. This is a time where we all need to be kind of coming together, right? But instead, this idea that we're all fearing each other um, really leads to horrible, horrible health outcomes. 
Uh, I'd love to talk to you more, Jonathan. That's, uh, I feel like we're just getting to the part where, which I want to talk to you about, like the, the, the power that's baked into the fact that if you, you and I hate the same things and as a result, uh, you end up voting with me. In other words, it's not a vote for someone. It's a vote against something else. And I'd love to explore that with you another time. But for now, we have to wrap up. Jonathan Metzl. Um, and by the way, that last thing I said is just my words. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, but I would agree with that. The, the book is Dying of Whiteness. And uh, I hope you'll come back through. You're a great visitor. And I love this conversation. And I think, it, unfortunately, it's all too relevant all the time. So thanks again. Let's keep talking for sure. Good deal. Thank you.